Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast is a Christ-centered podcast established in 2019 and hosted weekly by Pastor Chris Busher, addressing a host of topics such as the Great Commission, Christian discipleship, and often featuring interviews with special guests who are experts in their field. The views and events expressed on this podcast and all related materials belong solely to their author and not necessarily to the author's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, some information may become outdated over time. Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast makes every attempt to timely update any and all such information. Without further delay, here's another powerful episode of Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast. I am your co-host, Dallas Montague. Today we have a special guest, Reverend Milford Talbot, who received his master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University in La Mirada, California. In the early 2000s, he launched an apologetics radio program on radio station KKLA 99.5 FM, Los Angeles, challenging cults, agnostics, atheists, and non-believers. And so looking into that, reading the intro of that makes me excited for this interview. I'm so excited to get Milford on the phone, get him in the studio today and hear what he has to say, hear his wisdom that he has to share with us about theology, about apologetics, and really the things that he did with the cults, the way he came against the cults, the agnostics, the atheists, the non-believers. And I'm really excited. And today I just want to share a quick testimony um, of this week. Um, here in Brazil, I was on the train and I was headed back from Sao Paulo and I saw a woman holding her young child. He was about two years old. The woman had her son in her hand on her lap and also a bag of chips. And the boy had two huge handfuls of chips in his hands. But he was still using his tongue with his face inside of the bag trying to eat more chips. And it was funny at first. I was like, man, this kid is so cute. He's two years old. You know, look at his hands. He's got things in his hands. And it, I watched him for a few minutes. But then he began to get frustrated. He began to get angry the fact that he couldn't get any more chips with his face. And I started to think, God, what what are you speaking? And he began to give me a revelation that God has already placed things in our hands and that sometimes our desires distract us from what God has already put in our hands. And so I just want to encourage you guys today, what has God placed inside of your hands? What desires do you have are distracting you from what God has already placed in your hands? You are qualified. You are anointed. You have what it takes to do what God has called you to And so today's title for this podcast is Producing Courageous Christianity for the 21st Century. Producing Courageous Christianity. And so I hope that this word, I hope that 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 quick testimony and the testimony from Milford and the things that he has to share with us will encourage you to have courageous Christianity and what that looks like and what the Bible says about certain topics. And I'm really excited. Some of the topics we're going to talk about today, I have theological questions prepared for him and some of them are pretty controversial. And one of them is, where was Jesus for the three days between his death and his resurrection? What does the Bible say about tongues? Is it, to, is it for today? Is it available for every believer? Once saved, always saved? Is eternal security biblical? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Um, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Those things. And so if you were curious about that, keep listening. And here's a quick word from our sponsors. You're listening to the Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast. We'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. 
In the Twinkling of an Eye by Paul Cummings is an autobiography written with honesty, simplicity, and humor. A story of God working in mysterious ways to perform wonders. Peculiar people in a peculiar way help Paul find Jesus, the Father, and himself. This is a story about what God did for Paul in the midst of sin, failure, and depression to bring acceptance, healing, and freedom from bondage. Read about how, in the twinkling of an eye, God will work in mysterious ways. Purchase In the Twinkling of an Eye, Transforming the Heart One Miracle at a Time by author Paul Cummings at www.wipfandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F-A-N-D-S-T-O-C-K.com. Dr. Oliver R. Phillips a retired minister and president of Culture Phillips LLC is the author of many noteworthy books, including Nuts and Bolts, Elephant in the Room, Culture Trumps Religion, and others. Find these on Amazon or directly through his website, culturephillips.com. For more information, visit culturephillips.com today. That's C-U-L-T-U-R-E-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S.com. Hello, Milford. How are you today? Good morning, Dallas. It's a beautiful day here in, in Florida, Central Florida, Orlando, and uh, God is still blessing me. How about yourself? Yeah, it's been a great Friday here as well, and it's great to have you on the podcast today. Before we begin, I'm just going to say a quick prayer, and then we can get started, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing day that you've given us. Thank you for this opportunity for the podcast, the platform, the listeners that we have, our audience that we have. Just thank you so much for having Milford on the podcast today. And I just pray that you anoint his words. You've uh, given the right things to say and that we can leave differently. We can leave knowing that you have the truth, God, that you are the plumb line in our lives. And I just pray that you encourage us and leave us with that. In Jesus' name, amen. You wrote a book called Courageous Christianity for the 21st Century, an introduction to basic Christian theology. That is correct. Uh, The reason I wrote that book, Dallas, is because... uh, uh, what we're hearing on TV uh, these days uh, it has nothing to do with the gospel. We hear a lot about uh, preachers talking about prosperity, and when you look at the doctrine behind it, we see that there is some truth, but within that truth, there is some untruth. And if the saints are not educated in their faith, then they are not able to discern which is the truth from beyond truth. And so I wrote the book so uh, the children of God could could read uh, what their faith is about, so that they learn what their faith is about. Because, Dallas, if you know what the truth is, you can see a lie right away. You don't have to learn about every lie in the world. You just have to know what the truth is. Yeah. Uh, so this book is uh, written for the sake of showing truth. Mm. Would you be able to... Sh- yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Would you be able to also share your testimony for the next five to ten minutes and just give our listeners an insight of who you are, the type of ministry you're a part of today, why you still believe today? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, uh, the country of Trinidad and Tobago. I was born in the Big Island, Trinidad. I'm a a south boy. I'm a country boy. I grew up with the animals. (laughs) I know what it is. to touch the ground. I know milk doesn't come from the grocery store. It comes from the cows. Uh, in that little village that I was uh, a part of, Answerville Village, and 
South Trinidad. Uh, the missionaries from the Church of the Nazarene were doing some work down there. They built a church building, and uh, in fact, we helped uh, cast the foundation. Back in those days, the people helped actually build the, the building. So uh, at 15 years of age, uh, I, I sought the Lord, and uh, he heard my cry. And I gave my heart to the Lord, confessed my sins, uh, accepted his death and resurrection as the full propitiation for my sins. And so I am very sure that I am saved. Uh, after that, I came to the United States. And uh, in our culture, in that church, people were so nice. Everybody came to the airport to see me off. Because I did work in the church. I was in the choir. I taught Sunday school. Uh, I was always very active. So in the United States, I came to uh, uh, the Los Angeles area after graduating from San Francisco State University and working as a mechanical engineer for Bechtel Corporation. Uh, I joined the church of, uh, uh, I joined the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, because the preaching was relevant to to my case as an immigrant in the United States. And so uh, I got the call of God uh, in, in 1989, and uh, it takes five years uh, to become an AME preacher. Uh, even though you have a PhD, uh, this faith that I belong to uh, make you sit under a pastor for five years. So by the time you graduate with an itinerant elder, uh, the grief, then you are able to run a church. Hmm. So I planted the church in Inglewood, California. And at the same time, I was going to school at Biola University for my master's in Christian apologetics, hmm. which I accomplished in 1999. And as soon as I left there, I was listening to the radio on an apologetics ministry, and I joined that ministry. It's called Into the Word Ministry. And I had that ministry for two years. Dallas, we had a good time uh, talking to people that were on the road from 12 midnight to 2 a.m. We were kept very, very busy with call-ins. And uh, we talked to folks who were atheists. So we, we debated Jehovah Witnesses. We corrected uh, doctrines from other Christian groups, and uh, we were well-respected. Then I, I moved to Maryland, where most of my family was. My kids had grown up by, by that time. And I continued in the church at uh, Mount Pisgah AME Church. I, I was an associate pastor there, and then I moved uh, to uh, southern Florida and uh, at uh, uh, Mount Hermon AME Church, and then I moved to uh, Central Florida, uh, Orlando, and I had a very good time at uh, Bethel AME Church in a little country town called Umatilla. Very nice folks. Uh, but I live in uh, near downtown Orlando, so there is a lot of need in the downtown area for people who have ministries to minister to the homeless, uh, to the, the, the poor. And, and so my wife and I, we, we go to uh, one of the big lake areas in downtown called Lake Eola. 
and we minister to the folks that are lying on the grass. They they're obviously homeless, and uh, make some friends with some churches around there, so we can have people to find a place to go to church. Uh, and we find that we are more blessed blessing those than than if we did not have a ministry of that type. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dallas, the one thing with the homeless, nobody they don't have anybody to talk to. People tend to uh, avoid them. Nobody ever touches them. They don't get a hug from anybody. They they live a very lonely life, and this is what I'm realizing. So I think anybody who has a ministry that ministers to the homeless on the street, uh, the homeless really needs us. They, they really need to feel the touch of God. They really need to feel the hand of God, and God uses us in that way to take care of his own. So uh, that's my ministry. I, I'm still uh, an AME preacher. But I have my ministry. I have a website called studyyourfaith.org. And on that website, you can see what our ministry is about, studyyourfaith.org, on the website. And the book, um, Courageous Christianity for the 21st Century, is, is a part of that feature in the in the website. But uh, I, I love the Lord, and I, I love his work, and I get full satisfaction from what I do for God. And for God I live, and for God I die. That's my testimony, uh, Dallas. Yeah, That's thank you. That's my testimony. Uh, first, I just want to talk about the book. So if you are hungry for a Christian education, this book will feed you to the full. This is, um, from what I understand about your book, is it's like theology school in a book, right? It's like a short intro that is exactly right Uh, it is theology in a book the things that i learned in school and it was not exactly cheap (laughs) in in a school uh, such as biola university uh i'm in my 70s now and around this age dallas we tend to start forgetting the things that we learned before so before it all diminishes from my brain (laughs) I decided, let me put it in a book form so I can teach people what I know. Because the congregation that sits before you, they don't know what the pastor knows. And uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we as pastors uh, forget that. And uh, we tend to just preach and teach, but not get deep into the Word so that the congregation understand why things are the way they are. So, And do you think it's common for us to just assume that they do know? It is very common to assume that... that now, if you're, if you're a pastor that, that, that believes in song doctrine, you're different from a pastor that doesn't care. Uh, the pastor that doesn't care would say anything because, first of all, he doesn't know as much as he's supposed to know. <laughs> he has a lot of zeal, but not a lot of knowledge. So he can't even begin to be deep with the people. Uh, but the, the pastors uh, that have been properly schooled uh, will have a heart for the people so that their preaching would be a reflection of what they have learned and understood. Uh, Their preaching would be more in line with what the gospel says 
and not so in line with people's feelings. When you go for feelings, you could you can really draw a crowd. You can have the the broad way with all feelings, but the narrow way that the yeah. Bible talks about with doctrine is not as popular <laughs> as it the feelings one goes. So uh, I, I wrote the book so that we, we get the feelings out of the way and, and look at the doctrine. The doctrine is important. That That's why the book was written. So questions about about heaven and hell, and a lot of us as preachers, we, we kind of avoid the hell. We don't want to we don't want to talk about hell. We we don't want to quote unquote scare people. We 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 want to be light, so we don't want to quote unquote step on toes. Uh, but this book will step on your toes if your doctrine is wrong. And and the way I write this book, since I'm a Christian apologist, and that's what I've been trained in, I always give reasons for why I say what I say. Uh, for example. And it's very biblical. The reasons don't come out of my mind. When you read this book, you'll see a lot of italics, and this is this is where the Bible quotes are. Uh, and 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 I weave them into the writing. And at the end of every quote, there is where you can find the scripture in the commerce. It'll tell you where that quote comes from, so that you can go back like the Bereans and check it out check the context out and see if what is written uh, is is matching with what is in the Bible. And, and, and so our preaching should be. Whatever we preach to the people should have some foundation in the Bible. You should be able to go back and say, yes, this is what pastor said. And mm, yeah, I just learned something from it. it. It's not sufficient, Dallas, to emotionalize people in the congregation. People like to get a good feeling and they are swayed by a good feeling. Isn't that what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden? It's pleasant to the eye. <laughs> it looks good. And so I ate it. Well, feelings are there. You can't get rid of feelings. But at the same time, you have to have substantive, biblical approaches to your sermons. When people sit to listen to you, they must have some concrete way of judging whether or not what you're saying is true. If all you feed is feelings, then you say whatever can engender those feelings, and the people go back and they say, boy, we, we had a good time in church, and you ask, what was the sermon about? I don't know, but it's, he, he sure can preach. Boy, he was shaking and he was dancing and he was, no. What did you learn about Jesus today in church? That is the quintessential question. And, and that's why the book is there. Now, for preachers who have not had the opportunity to go all the way through seminary, you should get a copy of this book. Because this book is going to fill in the gaps where your mind is telling you, uh, I'm not sure about this, and I'm not sure about that. This book is more likely to fill in those gaps than not. For example, I, I have a chapter in, in the book on bibliography. 
and and in the bibliography it's probably about 10 pages which is five leaves it's, it's not hard to read it, it codifies how the bible is put together if you want doctrine about the church i put together all the books in the bible that speaks about doctrine you want history about the people of jerusalem i have codified put the books together so if you're going to write a sermon and it's doctrinal then you go to the books that is codified in there for the doctrine so we don't just know the 66 books of the bible you would know how they put together and how one coalesces with the other so that you can make a proper sermon so this book is really great for preachers and for bible teachers if you are going to teach a bible class you 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 don't have to go study for two years you've got courageous christianity for the 21st century in your hand at the end of every chapter we've got questions and these questions uh put together so that you as the teacher can go back into the chapter and find out if you really did understand it and then you're able to teach because when questions come up as you teach you can say yes turn back to this phrase and you'll see where it says this that or the other or turn to the bible scripture and this is what it says and here is the explanation for your question so so the book is, is put together in such a way that you you can teach from it you can teach from it and uh, and so you don't have to worry about well i'm not so sure let me call the pope and see what he has to say no you got the book in your hand you can do that it's it's an expanding book because i'm up to the second edition in the second edition i added um two chapters chapter 17 uh, which deals uh, with uh, the problem of common evil. If we have such a great God that is so merciful, why does He allow people to 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 get murdered? Why we have all these wars? Uh, can't He stop it? What's wrong with this God? Somebody's holding His hand behind His back. Why doesn't He stop all evil? Well, there's an answer for that. And of course, I'm very logical in the way I present things backed up by scripture. So you can read that. Then the next thing is about miracles. That's the second chapter that I, I put in there in the second edition. And that chapter deals with miracles. Are miracles real? Uh, could we scientifically look into them? Well, the answer is yes. And I give an example. And I show why the scientists just totally dismiss us Christians when we talk about miracles. So the, the question about miracles is in there, and the question about common evil is in there. And, and that's part of the second edition. Plus, I put a sermon in there on the, on the existence of God. I have a sermon on the existence of God, and every preacher ought to read that sermon. Because it tells you why we should believe in a God why we should believe in our god why is our god the only god in the universe why is our god everlasting can you explain everlasting and why everlasting even came to be that is in that sermon on page 23 in i believe it's chapter 2 on the existence of god very 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 tightly put together
I think it will it will help a lot of people. I do have mm -hmm. go ahead. I do have another question for you. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Yes, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, you know? You know. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Go for it. You know something, Dallas? When people tell me, oh, no, there's no such thing as a Trinity because Trinity is not in the Bible. My first question, not question, my answer is this. It, it's, it's, it's a kind of tongue-in-cheek answer. I say, look. The very words that says, Reverend Talbot should not take his Bible and beat you into submission. Those words are not written <laughs> in the book. <laughs> Those words are not written in God's Bible. But does that mean that I can take my Bible and plummet you to the ground? Of course not. Because in that same Bible, it says, do unto others as you would do on... Uh, do unto us as you'd have them do unto you. That's not an exact quote, but that's the substance of what it says. And so looking for the Trinity within the Bible uh, is not looking for words that's in the Bible. There it is. That's the Trinity. It says Trinity. No, 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 no. You have to look at the Bible systematically. Find out the context. Find out the culture. Now, another thing uh, people miss, those that are looking for the Trinity in the Bible, you've got to know the difference between being and persons. You and I are beings. We are human beings. Being just means that you're there. Unfortunately, with our being, we diminish and we die. But that's why Paul is saying we live and breathe and have our being in God. He is the supreme being. Without him, our being won't exist. So, in our being, we are one being with one person. The day we end up with more than one person or one being, they send the ambulance for us and put us in a white coat with long sleeves. And there are people that have split personalities and multiple personalities. So, And they're still one being. They're just one being. They just have more than one person in there, and that's very abnormal for a human being. But for a God, that is not abnormal. He is still one being. He's got three persons. It's not abnormal for him to have three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So knowing the difference between being and person, you, if you mix them up, you're going to go crazy. But if you understand what a being is, read it in the book. There's a chapter on being then you're going to learn to understand that you can be a being and have multiple personalities, which in this planet Earth, we are going to have to sedate you. It is not normal. But as far as a God is concerned and our God is concerned, it is quite normal for him to be one being and have three persons. So, Dallas, I hope I, hope I help somebody out there <laughs> explaining this. Get the book, and, and you'll understand. Yeah. Yes, indeed. The next one is, you're talking about, okay, the Trinity, three different persons yeah. in one. Well, this is talking about different denominations. If we are all one in Christ, why are there so many different denominations out there? Well, because they're different countries, because they're different towns, but there's one spirit. Because they're different cultures. Now, my friend, Dr. Oliver Phillip, has a book uh, called... Um, um, cultural 
CQ. Um, that, that's enough. Cultural oh, intelligence. Actually, exactly. yeah, yeah. Right, if, right. if you guys have not heard Dr. Oliver Phillips' podcast, he also recorded a podcast with us. Go back and listen to that. It's also very, very good. Exactly. Continue. Yes, Thank you. And, and so culture uh, uh, trumps Christianity. Uh, and that's one of his books, too. <laughs> I'm giving all this PR for my brother, uh, Oliver <laughs> Phillips. Well, we grew up together as brothers uh, in, in the little uh, island of Trinidad and Tobago. We went to the same church as young men. So I know, I know Dr. Phillips very, very well. Now, because of culture and, and the development of culture within the church, we find that people have a propensity to gather together and, and think a certain way, although we, we all Christians, we think certain ways within our culture. Now, the mainline denominations, which are the, the, the Methodists, uh, the Catholics, uh, and the Presbyterians, uh, those are the mainline denominations in the book that I explained. Uh, the, the re- and there's precedence for each one having a different set of ways to run their church. The Episcopal format is what the Methodists and the Catholics and the, the Episcopalians, Anglicans, run their church. It means that there's a bishop uh, who hears from God, and through, through the Holy Spirit and the leanings of God, he sends his pastors out to different areas to do their, their pastoral work. Now, the precedent for that is, is Paul sending uh, a little Timothy out there, for example, to do the work of the church and, and cluing him in as a young pastor as to what to do uh, in God's sphere. Now, that, that's the Episcopal form. Now, there's the congregational form. The Baptists use a congregational form. It's the congregation that says, yes, Mr. Pastor, I like how you preach, you're sound in your doctrine, we want you to be our pastor. That's they choose the pastor. Nobody sends them out. They choose the pastor. And, and, and we see that the, in the Bible, uh, before Paul went out and, and certain preachers went out, they laid hands on them and sent them out. See, the congregation says, yes, you're a pastor good enough for us. You're so good enough for us, we're going to send you out there. That's congregational. So there is precedence for that. And then you have the Presbyterian or the Reformed churches. They have some older men that get together. They've been in Christianity very long. They've seen what's happening. Their eyes are open. They know how to run churches. And they pick the pastor. There's precedence for for that also in the Bible. So when when you look at the three different precedents, then... Churches are developed uh, uh, within those precedences. So you'd you'd find the churches that like to be a congregational church, you'll find many of them, a lot of Baptist church, uh, even some apostolic churches. Um, Of course, we we know the, the, the Anglican, we know the Catholic, we know the Methodist, they all have bishops. And these are the reasons why they have bishops because they're an Episcopal-run church. It's the way the church is governed. They're an Episcopal-run church. Then the congregational churches, like the Church of the Nazarene, a lot of the holiness churches, the Baptist churches, there's precedence in the Bible for that, and that's why we have those types of churches. 
They only have different names, but the way they are governed is what makes them a type of church, not their names. And you can name a church anything. And these days, boy, you hear all kinds of names of churches. Oh, yeah, you hear all <laughs> kinds of crazy names today. Right. But it's the way the church is governed, three different ways to govern a church, uh, uh, Episcopal run, Congregational run, and the Presbytery. The Presbytery, that's why they call them Presbyterians. The Presbytery is these older folks. And, and, and it comes from way back in the, the Jewish era, where the, the older men, the priests ran everything, the whole theocracy. So there has always been a precedent for Presbyterian-run churches, because it started in the Jewish congregations. So uh, when when you see these different churches, uh, forget the names; it's it's how they run is is what makes them a different church uh, from the one that you're in. And uh, since there's precedence for each of the three, uh, we have to respect that. Because it's all God ordained in each one. So whichever one we choose, uh, if you're satisfied in that setting, stay there. Right? If you're satisfied being in a Presbyterian setting, stay there. If you're satisfied being in a Baptist church, also stay there. If you're satisfied being in an Anglican church, stay there. Because it's all uh, God ordained in any case. So yeah, that that's the story, uh, Dallas, on on all of these different churches that you have. But always look for Sangha. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Hmm. The next is a two-part mm-hmm. question, and the first part, I think I know the answer already. The second part is kind of controversial, yes. and so good luck mm-hmm. with that. But the first part is: is the Holy Spirit an active force? Does the Holy Spirit have feelings, knowledge, understanding? And the second part is, what does the Bible say about the tongues, about speaking in tongues? Is it for today? Is it, is it available for every believer? Okay, Dallas, the, the, the first part of that is, um, uh, tell me that first part again, because I don't want to get it mixed up. I want to go in order. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, yeah. The first part. Is the Holy Spirit an active force? Does it have feelings, knowledge, and understanding? Right. Okay. Uh, the, the, the 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 very way you form the the question, um, Dallas, is is pointing to a problem that we have in the church. We have a way of referring to the Holy Spirit as it. The mm, Holy good. Spirit is not <laughs> good. Okay, the Holy Spirit is not cast for the friendly ghost. Okay, the Holy Spirit is a He. Jesus is a He. God the Father is a He, and since the Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God the Father and God the Son, we should not diminish the Holy Spirit and refer to the Holy Spirit as it. I know sometimes it slips out of our tongue because of the culture we're in. We compartmentalize things so much that if we can't understand it, it's an it of some kind. Um, hmm. but, wow, but, but very good point. We, we should stop calling the Holy Spirit, because if somebody refers to me as an it, uh, my eyebrows are going to raise. I think my, <laughs> my nostrils will get a little bit wider. <laughs> okay. So when you're looking at the living God and you, you, you call one of his persons an it, that is not good. But God sees the heart. God knows where we're coming from. If we make that kind of mistake, 
God knows it's because of our culture. But we should try to eliminate that. If God, if the Holy Spirit is referred to as an it, then it's easy to relegate him to a force because a force is an it. But the Holy Spirit is not just a force. We know we see that type of thinking in the word of faith doctrine churches where you where it's like magic you 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 rub the bottle and here comes the genie you know uh, the holy spirit is this force and if you pray in a certain way you bring this force upon your prayer and this prayer is going to make you rich the holy spirit is a person remember god is one being with three persons in it and we know the holy spirit is a person because you can make him very very angry at you uh, uh, Ananias made him angry. Sapphire made him angry. Read Book of Acts, and he killed them. And 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 what did the saints say to to them? He said, "Listen, you have not lied to men, but to God." Referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus was leaving the earth, he says, "I will send the Holy Spirit." Right, which which tells me the Holy Spirit wasn't there when he was talking, which means there is somebody else besides Jesus that is coming to be your comforter. Right? And he is gonna teach you all things. And and it cannot really teach you all things. And it cannot teach you all things at all. Uh unless of course these days we have computers and AI and all that, but in day, the days when when this was written and it is not gonna teach you anything. So you have yeah. to have some kind of faculty for for you to be able to to be to, to be a, a teacher, and so only a person would have that kind of attribute. So the Holy Spirit is not a force, and that's just two areas you can look at to see that the Holy Spirit is is not just an active force. Now we we have some new Bibles that are coming out. This is why I like the King James Version Bible. Now I'm not saying it's the only Bible because I love the New International Bible. I love the New King James also. But the, the King James Bible was translated from Hebrew and Greek, the original, and it tends to say original and not get fancy. Uh, and so when you look at uh, Genesis 1-1, and, and, and you know, in the beginning, uh, God created heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, da 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 and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, right? I see some translation where it actually says under the, the force of God, and I'm saying I don't like that translation because it takes away mm. from the heness, the personality mm. of the Holy Spirit, and, and that is the Holy Spirit is not an active force. He's active, but he's not an active force. He is a person, one of the three persons in the Trinity. So that that's my take on that, Dallas. You got another question for me. I do have a, a quick in-between question. Yeah. So you're saying the King James Version is solid, the NIV is solid, the New King James Version is solid. Mm. The Would you encourage people to move towards that instead of like the message? For example, I've heard people say that's not even a translation. That's just a – I can't even remember the word – what they said. And then also the, the Passion Translation. Would you suggest well, people well, to, to move towards the, the I'm NIV? I'm not familiar with the Passion. But what I've noticed, okay. what has happened with some of, of the, the groups outside of the main line denomination, some pastor will put his name on a Bible and say, this is the so-and-so Bible. This is the, the Morris Sorello Bible. Morris Sorello didn't really write the Bible. It's not his Bible. It's always been God's Bible, right? And this is a woman's Bible. That's just to sell books. 
That's just to sell books. You need to sit under a pastor that knows what he's doing and let him teach you some stuff and you sit down and read it yourself. You don't need a woman's Bible. You need God's Bible. All right? So, so all these other fancy Bibles, they may have some aspect of, of, of learning in them that you can't pull out of the King James, for example, right away because somebody has already did that, done that for you. But be wary of the somebody because, you know, it's some of these transliterations of Bibles, um, it, it's like somebody chewing up the food and then saying, you swallow it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You no, know, the, the living Bible is, 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 is a good Bible. But the, the Living Bible, it, it, it tells you right away that um, they are sacrificing accuracy for, 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 for understanding in some kind of ways so that you can understand real, real English. They, they're trying to do that. So, so it's not a good, the Living Bible is not a study Bible, put it that way. It, it is a good Bible for baby Christians. But, but when you start maturing and going from milk to food, you need to get someone to school you, and you need to know from the Greek. So, so now I, I study the, the Greek language. Uh, I didn't study how to speak it, but I, I can read it in my New Testament. And, and um, so I, when you learn Greek language, it's the difference between looking at a movie in black and white and and a movie in color with with surround sound it it is it opens up some understanding that you would not otherwise have um and 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 so when and as a christian apologist we had to do some debates and come to some conclusions and use the the translations and and explain why we think this is this way and that is that way and, and get corrections and so we, when we come out of the classes with a master's degree from a reputable college like Seminary Biola University, which, which has Talbot Seminary, I don't like to mention the Talbot Seminary because mine is Talbot and it confuses people and say, what, you have seminary? No, but, but Biola University, it's a 100-year-old institution. Uh, so they've they've been through the mill. Um, they've been, they've been through all the corrections you have to do f- to be solid, and and they're very 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 solid. I recommend that school to anybody. And my good friend there, uh, uh, Craig Hazen, uh, Dr. Craig Hazen, I was his first. I was his very first graduate out of out of the school of apologetics. I was the graduation day. I was the only person standing. <laughs> Imagine that. But. Um, Today, I'm glad that I went to, to, to that school so that I can answer the, the, the questions and know what I'm saying is, is correct. That the, the, the translation, the NASB is a good translation. It's, it's, it's word for word. It's very kind of, uh, it marches on, <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's a good Bible, very, very good Bible, the NASB. Uh, the the um, new the uh, new international version is thought for thought. This is what the Bible 
teachers and speaking were thinking about. So they bring the thought to you. The NSB is what they were saying. So you get the wooden word in there for you. And, and the rest is kind of in between. But um, yeah. the, the, it, it, these Bibles are good Bibles. If you want to study the living word and all those others, the game Bible, they, they, they're not good study Bibles. But they, they're good enough for somebody who wants to know what, what God is saying. The second part of that question, uh, speaking in tongues, is that for today, is it for every believer? Uh, speaking in tongues is not for every believer. It's available. Um, speaking, this is what Paul says on speaking. And he spent all of 1 Corinthians 12 to talk about speaking in tongues and who should do what and when. And then he goes to chapter 13 and says, listen, I know what I said in chapter 12, and it's great, but let me show you an excellent, a more excellent way. And then he goes into all of this dissertation about love. Speaking in tongues is between you and God. Now, what is tongues? That's another thing. Is tongues the, the gibberish or is tongues a language? As far as the book of Acts is concerned, they were speaking in tongues and the tongues were named folks from Mesopotamia and this place and that. And the purpose for speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost is that all the Jews who has been taken away in wars and took, taken to this place and that place and learned this language and that language, when they came together, they heard it all in their own language. They didn't have to poke their brother next and say, what did he say? I didn't understand what he said. No. When the Holy Spirit was poured on the, the apostles, they spoke in different tongues, and the tongues were discernible. Now, if you're going to be speaking in tongues in the church, according to Paul, there must be an interpreter. And Paul is always expressing the church to not have things confused. He's a very logical thinking person. He doesn't like confusion. So if five people get up and start talking in tongues and five interpreters get up, nobody could understand anybody. It sounds like a quarrel. And he told them that. He said, look, if a person walks in here and hear you guys with all the tongues going on, they're going to say you guys are crazy. So is tongues for today? For some people, it is. It's between you and God. And in fact, Paul says, that if, if there is no interpreter, speak it quietly to yourself and God. Again, he's trying not to have this confusion in the church. But it's not a sign that you are a Christian just because you're speaking in tongues. It's not a sign. Other religions speak in tongues. Hindus speak in tongues. Hindus fall out on the ground. Here they do. But Christians, when Christians do something for God, it has specific meaning. So if a person is speaking in tongues, in a foreign tongue, some person is interpreting it, there's a reason for that. God is trying to say something to somebody else who doesn't know a language. He's not doing it just for the glory alone. Now, it, it, I, I have a lot of friends who pray and they start speaking in tongues. It's all right. That's between their prayer and, and God. 
apparently in those times, God is not trying to tell the rest of the congregation something. But to insist that you cannot be a Christian unless you speak in tongues is absolutely, positively wrong. And you cannot take people in the back room and teach them to speak in tongues. It is a function of the Holy Spirit. You can't do the work of the Holy Spirit teaching somebody to speak in tongues. That is patently wrong and unbiblical, unscriptural, undoctrinal, wrong, okay? But the question, is it for today? God is for today. God is for forever. The Holy Spirit is for today. The Holy Spirit is forever. And if you really are in a church, Dallas, and someone gets up and speaks in tongue, and another one gets up and they say what that person speaking in the tongue is saying, yes, you, you have to step back and let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit thing. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that answered it good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The next question, um, and we're coming down on our time, so yeah. uh, the next question is, once saved, always saved. Is eternal security biblical? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Ah. And this is a conversation I've had a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm excited for your answer on this one. Yes. Well, that that's one of the 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 thorns in 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 the rose bush of Christianity. So you know, I I always tell, always tell people when you're you're talking about one save, always save. Make sure you have your garden gloves on, <laughs> because because you can get pricked with that. The, the thing with, with once saved, always saved, is this, um, Dallas, that when we are saved, take John 3.16, for example. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, everlasting means just that. If you cut everlasting in pieces, now it's finite. It's not everlasting anymore. Everlasting does not have a reverse gear. We don't go towards everlasting and, oops, I sin, I'm going back backwards to damnation. Salvation is not like playing, um, what do they call this with chairs? Musical chairs. Where somebody runs around, where everybody, the music stops, and then it's one person left without a chair. It's not salvation. The question for those who believe in salvation is this, can I lose my salvation? Can I fall from grace? I always hear people over fall from grace. Yeah, that's another version, yeah. From, there's only one place in the Bible that talks about falls from grace, and it has nothing to do with the Bible. It's Paul saying, look, if you are going to start mixing in circumcision, which is a Jewish uh, tradition back then, with Christianity, in an effort to be saved, you're now going to add this little thing here with your Christianity to make sure you go to heaven. He said, no, if you start believing in things like these, then you are not understanding the meaning of grace. Milford, I have one last question for you. This question is also another controversial question. What does the Bible say about women pastors? Mm. Well, the Bible doesn't really say anything about women pastors per se, 
And one can argue that uh, when Judas left the twelve and uh, and uh, the eleven had a chance to bring in another apostle, they could have brought in a woman, but they didn't. Uh, on 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 the other hand, uh, the Bible did not exclusively um, say women shouldn't preach. So let's go to a, a difficult text, a, a real hard one. <laughs> and see if we can decipher what it is the Bible has to tell us. Because we don't take Scripture and have one Scripture pull the other one apart. What we do is we synergize the Scripture. We take them all together and find out what they're saying together. So let's take a real difficult one. It says here in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also said the law. But if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. My goodness. If you read that by itself, <laughs> you would look at all women like, oh my goodness. But if you read it in the context, you get a different picture. If you're well learned. Before we can give a verdict about why the Holy Spirit through Paul, and it's the Holy Spirit speaking, because some people said, I don't believe in Paul. Paul said that. No, the Holy Spirit through Paul should give us a distance. We must know something about the city of Corinth, because this is written to the Corinthians. We must know something about the Corinth before we can give a verdict. Corinth was a very wealthy city, Dallas. It commanded two big shipping ports, so a lot of different people came in. It was always full of sailors looking for a good time. There were temples and shrines dedicated to false gods, such as the god of Poseidon, the god of the sea. There was the, the god of healing, Asclepius, the god of healing. There was the god Apollo. There was the god Hermes. There was the god Venus for the god Isis. And most famously, Dallas, the god Aphrodite. She had 1,000 prostitutes in wow. her church. Now, we're not talking about currents as big as Los Angeles with 29 million people. So to have 1,000 prostitutes in, in, in a, an area that, that who knows how big it was, but it certainly wasn't big like a metropolis in the United States. So the ratio between the women who were prostitutes and the women who were not, that was a very low ratio. In other words, you can walk down the street and you can say, hey, there's a prostitute right there. It's not going to be, oh, I've been walking for three days and I haven't seen a prostitute. You've seen a lot walking and milling around the place. So, Corinth was a city that was synonymous with immorality, immorality, rank immorality. Now, back in those days, to call a lady a Corinthian laugh was to convey upon that woman a very tattered reputation. So now, let's look at the text. Now that we know the background of the city, now that we know the context, that's the context in which it was written, that's one context, the other context we'll talk about later on, the city was full of prostitutes, and some of them were being converted. Now, how they looked, some of them shaved their heads, uh, 
they talked, uh, what their mannerisms were, they brought all of that into the church. Let's take the text again. Let your women keep silent in the churches. We take that. Dallas, I've heard this passage misstated so many times and in so many ways, and it is always preceded by this. Well, the Bible says... Now, Dallas, there's a reason why Paul says your women and not just women in general. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing we first got to look at. That's why I like the King James Version. Because when King James asked for, for, for the, the Vulgate to be translated in English, he was a king with a sword in his hand. You made a mistaken mis- in translating off with your head. So the King James Version is a very, very careful version of the Bible. That's why I like it. There's a reason why Paul says, your women, let your women keep silent. Your women. Who are these your women? Your Corinthian women. And why? Because of that context we talked about. The women of Corinth endured a reputation of Corinth. Corinth was a debauch city with a thousand shrine prostitutes. Therefore, to be a new convert listening to a Corinthian woman in the pulpit would raise serious questions among the flock. It would stir up memories of a wild time to these young men. It will cause some people to ask, why is this shaved-haired woman, who yesterday was a prostitute, up on this pulpit? It would cause confusion within the church. It can cause a church to split hmm. in Corinth. It can cause jealousy. Paul did not want that kind of confusion in the church. If you read the entire 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you will see that it is a polemic against confusion in the church. That was the main reason. Paul does not like confusion. It is not about women preachers per se. From verse 1 to verse 39, Paul's message was this. Let all things be done decently and in order. And if anything is going to disturb the decency and order, Paul is going to talk against it. And this is one of the ways and one of the times when Paul is talking against it. Another thing one must consider in this passage is this. It's the difference between descriptive and prescriptive edicts. Let me show you what I mean. Take Matthew seven twelve for example. Matthew seven twelve says this. Therefore, all things whatsoever you do that men should do to you, you do even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Matthew seven twelve. Now compare this with let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted for them to speak, but ye are commanded to be under obedience as also said the law. In both cases, we talk about the law. This is the law and the prophets. As also said the law in 1 Corinthians. The word law, nomos in the Greek, is very nuanced. It has different meanings. When used figuratively, it's a principle. When used genitively, or in the genitive case, it's a regulation. In its prescriptive usage, it's a hard and fast law. Now let's take the text in Matthew. 
Therefore, all things, whatever you do, for this is the law and the prophets. This is used descriptively. It's describing what usually goes on. The Jews know that they should follow the law of Moses, and they've been doing it for hundreds of years. So Matthew is saying, look, be nice to your brother. Man, this, this is what the law says. Right? That's descriptive. I'm describing what the law says to you who know the law. But in the case of the Corinthian women, the Corinthian churches with newborn, it had to be prescriptive. It had to be a prescription of how we're going to run this church in Corinth, because Corinth is not Jerusalem. And so you find that Paul uses almost the Greek word for, for law as prescriptive in this case. It is a prescription for how the church should be run in Corinth. Let's go through the text. Let your women keep silence in the churches. Genitive case, meaning that it is a regulation imposed by Paul. Now let's jump, Dallas, to the very, very hard part. As also says the law. Which law, <laughs> Dallas? The law of Moses? Or the Christian law? Paul, it couldn't be the law of Moses because Paul preached against salvation by works of the law many, many times. In fact, after his conversion, he, he, that's what he said. Look, man, it's, it's not by works. At least any man should boast. What it, this law is, it's the law of the Christian faith. If you look uh, up um, in, in the Greek, you'll find it says this. If you look at nomos. The law demanding faith and the moral instructions given by Christ. The law that demands, that's the law we're talking about, not the Mosaic law, the Christian law. The law demanding faith. You must come by faith to be saved. And the moral instructions given by Christ, especially the precept concerning love. It's a moral issue. Paul did not want to have the appearance of evil in the church. He was endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 3. But, Dallas, we do not have a Corinthian situation in these United States. Mm, that's a good yet. point. Maybe we're getting there, but we were not there yet. Yeah, it's good to keep that in mind when we're oh, asking those questions. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Our women are not Corinthian type women. Amen. The people who come on our pulpit don't have shaven hairs and looking like a mm -hmm. Corinthian woman. We don't have the problems that Corinth had mm -hmm. back then. Our women are fine, mm -hmm. thank you. Our women preachers are more mm -hmm. than okay, thank you. And yeah. praise That's the Lord. That's a good point. So, Dallas, let us leave our women in the pulpit where God mm. has put them. We did not call them to the pastorship. God mm. did. God knows what he's doing. Leave the women alone. So long as they're doing sound doctrine, leave them mm. alone. Well, Donald, I, I think we, we, we're going to get some roses from these <laughs> female preachers. Yeah. And, and I bet the men are going to mm. send us thorns. <laughs> but Dallas, thorns make a good fire, so thorns Anyway, they're useful. Yeah. Thank you for going into that. And 
Lean and over. all of those other questions. Uh, yes. I have more. I wish we had more time to ask. Uh, maybe in the future we can do another podcast. And, but I have I learned Definitely. a lot myself. So yeah. thank you so much for going in depth on all of those questions and giving scriptural backing of those God questions bless. as well. God yeah, thank you. you. And your book, Courageous Christianity for the 21st Century. If you guys enjoyed the podcast today, enjoyed the way that he went into those questions, there's more questions like that inside the book. There's more information, more wisdom. Check out his book. I have a copy of his book. Go online. I'm going to put the link in the description. Go find it. And also, Milford, what's another way that these guys can find you? What's another way our audience can can contact you? Well, uh, they can go They can go to the website. Um, it's uh, studyyourfaith.org, studyyourfaith.org. And you can get more than just a book. Um, you, you can get uh, some other links to other books that is good for building up the faith. And you can my blog. Uh, I've, I've got blogs on there that that uh, make you think. Studyyourfaith.org and and see what fine things you can get to help you in your Christian walk. You can also uh, uh, call uh, the the ministry uh, in in the in the United States. We we have a, a toll free number, and uh, that toll free number eight eight eight. Eight three eight five five eight nine. That's eight 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 three eight five five eight nine. And you would be reaching that number, and uh, someone will answer. If it's busy, you can leave her a message. And that's a study your faith ministry. Study your faith ministry. That eight 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 three eight five five eight nine in the United States. And Dallas, I want to thank yeah. you very much uh, for interviewing me and. We, we're going to pray you. I'm yep, going to pray you, you out. Much. I'm going to pray you out. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father and our God, we thank you for sharing this time with us, with your Holy Spirit sending and standing among us as we talk about your word. We trust, Lord, that uh, the audience, having heard this podcast, uh, would think more dearly about doctrine and, and think about what you want for them in this life. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We were so glad and we rejoiced in it. Thank you for the podcast. Thank you for the ministry that Dallas has that spreads the word through his podcast. Bless everyone that heard and everyone that will hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've just listened to the Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast. With your host, Pastor Chris Busher. Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast was recorded live in studio with final editing made before uploading. Subscribe today to Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. For more fantastic daily content, visit Pastor Chris Busher online via Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Don't miss the next episode on Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast.